This is The Secret Life of Writers, a new interview series from inside the literary world. I'll be speaking to some of the most interesting and visionary writers about what they're working on now and how they balance life and art and somehow manage to focus creatively with everything else going on. My name is Gemma Birrell, and I've worked with writers for many years from Shakespeare and Company Bookshop in Paris to Sydney Writers' Festival and now Tableau. I've always found that writers are able to articulate what we need to hear when we need to hear it, so I hope you'll get as much from these rambling conversations as I have. This is an interview I had with Keridwen Dovey. It took place in April, in the middle of the most intense part of the coronavirus lockdown here in Sydney, Australia. Keridwen grew up between Australia and South Africa and has written award-winning novels and audio novels, as well as essays and profiles published in places like Wired and The New Yorker. She's also written a literary biography of J.M. Kurtzea that's also a memoir of sorts. All of her writing is really different, but one thing it does have in common is the way she combines really provocative ideas with lyrical language and great storytelling, which is a pretty perfect combination. Hello, Keridwan. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, hi, Gemma. It's so nice to hear your voice. (laughs) (laughs) Or just a voice. (laughs) It's all a bit strange at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, I was so worried this whole morning that I would forget that we had this planned because, you know, everyone's schedules are just so weirdly open in spite of all the family responsibilities that I had to actually set a timer on my phone to remind me at 11 to, you know, get out of my pyjamas and (laughs) put on my, put on my brain. So, yeah. It's definitely a bit like that because we're all used to having that separation between work and home. But now we are all inside for most of the time, which is pretty hard to deal with, isn't it, especially with children? Well, it's funny, you know, I actually have worked from home for the last few years, like both as a mum to young kids, but then also I tend to also on the writing days that I manage to scrounge, I tend to write from home. So it's actually been really interesting for me to see how everybody else is responding to that new reality and um in a weird way it's less lonely for me because usually like I don't know say on a Tuesday you know weekday most people are off at work and Tuesday is one of my days where I tend to stay at home and write and it's very quiet in the flat and you know all of the apartments around me are really quiet and and I'm kind of used to that and I've got ways of coping with the long stretch of the afternoon that can often feel a little bit depressing if you work from home. But now suddenly, you know, there's signs of life all around me and there's been something weirdly nice and reassuring about that um, and the feeling that, yeah, it's not that kind of wasteland of feeling like you are the only person who's not, you know, in a social network in the middle of a bustling office every day. Is there a big difference now for you with your writing routine, specifically in terms of how your children and partner are home all of the time now? Mm. So I guess usually I have um, three fairly short work days, so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, my older son's in primary school and then the younger one goes to a preschool for those days and then my parents do a bit of time. So, and the days are short, right? Like the school pickup's 2.55. 
but I am incredibly productive when I'm at home because it's just me. And so, and I also believe that three hours of really productive thinking work is about all the human brain can manage in a day anyway. But yeah, I mean, the irony now is that I'm at home all the time, but I'm not getting any work done like many people. Or when I am, I'm having to now actually work at night or on the weekends. So the bits of paid work that I'm still trying to cling desperately to, even though it's all drying up for freelancers, um, as we know across the whole arts industry, you know, there's just everybody's panicking and advertisers are pulling their revenue. So from magazines that I write for and and then, of course, yeah, I'm having to homeschool a year two child. The school sends home a lot of work. I know you're dealing with some of these same issues. And so it's not like a weekend day where even if you're home with the kids, you know, they're kind of playing or they can be kids and you can be parenting but to be a teacher to them is a very different role and I guess I've been doing it for two and a half weeks now it's tough um it feels unmanageable to be both mother and teacher so at the moment you're getting much less time to focus on your own work Yeah, I've barely had any. My partner is wanting to help, but his job is um, he is working from home, but he is on work calls 24-7 and he's been forced to reduce his hours and his pay, but there's still these huge responsibilities. So the tiny bits of work that I've been able to do have been actually at night after the kids have gone to bed, which is never usually when I work because I'm not really a night person and I find it's the more hours that I'm really, that three hour, like that nine to 12 kind of chunk is when I feel I can sort of think more clearly. Can you tell us a little bit about that negotiation with your partner? It seems like a very difficult thing to negotiate who gets that time at home to work Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that's really frustrating to me about this time and what's happened under quarantine is that my work has, for the last sort of eight years, taken the back seat because, like any family, you know, right from the beginning of of starting a family, we had to make a call as to whose career was going to get prioritised and who was going to be the primary caregiver to the kids. And I've been really happy to do that. And I've been very lucky in having that flexibility and um, being able to do the writing from home so that I could be here, but also, you know, kind of have something of my own and a, a life of the mind at the same time. But the quarantine situation, I feel like has kind of made the things that I'm unhappy about in that balance of, of work and life. It feels like it's brought those things to the fore in a way. And same with the unfair structures around parenting in this culture and the ways that women are still expected to carry this unmanageable load. Like so many of the women that I'm speaking to who are friends of, um, you know, mums of Gethin's friends from school, and it's the same story over and over of if their partner's workplace hasn't already made some pretty radical changes in terms of supporting men to be fully engaged partners and fathers, then what happens when, you know, the shit hits the van like it has now is that, again, all of the labor is pushed back onto the women, even though the women are also having to work outside the home as well. So it's just this feeling of like all that 
unpaid labor that I do every day at home. While it's weirdly more visible now, and I think to many partners, what I hope might come out of this is that women's work will be, or what's traditionally been seen as women's work in the home. Those partners who've been stuck at home, you know, for these four months of quarantine, they won't be able to unsee or unremember You know, the daily kind of grind and grit and heart that goes into keeping, you know, small humans alive, but also just the basics, you know, keeping ourselves fed and clean clothes on our backs. And and it's so invisible most of the time. And I think we can all often pretend when we're going about our normal lives that because it's invisible, you know, that it doesn't count as work. And it's an old struggle for feminists to make that work visible and acknowledged and valued as work, even though it's unpaid. And I really hope maybe that the way that this flexibility around workplaces and the way that men are being forced to stay at home and to see that labour day in, day out, hour by hour, that I'm hoping there'll be a kind of radical political change at the end of this that might be that final thing that we need to happen to really break down those, you know, last surviving vestiges of the inequality, gender inequality in our society. And I think it's almost inevitable that there will be changes because of the unseen work being seen, as you so beautifully said. And what I think is really interesting there as well is looking at the invisible work of a mother, but also the invisible work of an artist and the value, what we give value to in our society. And it's interesting thinking about that in terms of both being a mother and a writer. Yeah, I think it's kind of like a double whammy in a way. Like, I mean, I've certainly done this to myself, but yeah, sometimes, you know, on the bad days, I I beat myself up because I'm like, my God, all the work I do, almost all the work I do is, is actually unpaid. I'm working all the time and I'm a very hard worker. But when it really comes down to it, a lot of that, well, all the mothering work's unpaid, but then so much of the creative work is unpaid. And it's something I've really struggled with over the years. Again, also when I have such limited work time, I have to bring in some income. And so that's why I do the freelance work, you know, it's to survive. But then to hoard a little bit of time for the creative work, particularly on the fiction, that could go nowhere. I mean, I've worked on so many novels over three years that I've then given up on, walked away from, and it just feels like it's getting harder and harder to justify doing that. But there's also a motivation to work on these incredible books that you write, on your works of art, on your fiction, on your essays, on your profiles. Yeah, I mean, it's more like a compulsion, and I don't know, this isn't, you know, different people have different reasons for writing, but... I can't live without it. So that's where the struggle comes. Like for me, it really is the most fundamental sort of form of therapy. So I don't actually know how I feel or even what I think until I process it in language. And what about the novel specifically and what that particular form is to you? I think the form of the novel is so important, but it's the most difficult form to protect both as a creator and as a reader. It's the form I feel most anxious about because will it survive in these times of just attention deficit that we all struggle with? I mean, I struggle with it too, you know, even though I'm not on social media, just I find email and text enough of a, you know, just constantly splitting my attention. But the form of the novel and that way of 
slipping into someone else's mind and really living there for a while. So not just dipping in and out, which I don't think is the most rewarding way to engage with another mind. It's so, it's just the best thing ever. But I even find, I mean, now is a bad time. Like I'm not getting to read. I feel so jealous of people who don't have kids who, for them, I would just, I hope they are making the most of this time and just reading in bed all day and having doona days every second day. And because if I didn't have kids, I would be so happy right now. I would be like just binging novels, you know, um, (laughs) all day, every day, um, or I would be writing or, you know, so I hope that people out there who have ambitions to write a novel, I hope they're doing it now, you know, so that something good comes out of this time. Nobody with young children is going to come out of this having achieved anything in their own creative lives. It is, it's a strange, it is a strange period being kind of shut up and trying to focus, shut up inside, I mean, and trying to focus on other things. You're saying that you're writing a lot of stuff at nighttime now, which is a different period for you. Yes, actually, just before this all happened, um, I got an assignment to write for the Smithsonian Magazine in DC. It was the first time, so that's always a bit stressful because, you know, you've got to figure out a whole new style and tell yourself you can do it. But um, they gave me an assignment to go to Kangaroo Island and write about koala rescue on the island after the bushfires that burned half the island in January. And I just sort of said yes, you know, without even thinking about it, it's actually a well-paid assignment, which is so rare, and they were going to pay for travel costs and really incredible opportunity to go to Kangaroo Island and see how those communities were coping in the aftermath of the fires. So I did it, and they sent a a photographer as well. So it was all very professional and a new experience for me working in the field with a photographer who was wonderful and being there on the ground. Um, So it's been really great in these weeks at night to have that to work on and tinker with. Luckily, I had finished a rough draft of the piece. I got back and then things was looking pretty bad with the virus, but I managed to get a rough draft in. So now it's sort of the copy editing and fact checking. And so it's not, you know, incredibly intellectually challenging, but it's nice to still feel like I'm doing something for paid work and something productive. Can you tell us a little bit about Kang? Island when you went there and what it was like after the fires? Yeah, I mean, it was devastating to see, not from what I was expecting, like I knew that the landscape was going to be really confronting and it was, you know, just these swathes of burnt bush and these burnt blue gum plantations where all of the or 50% of the koalas on the island were living but actually what was more confronting was to see the way that the communities who've been dealing with the fires and the aftermath of the fires are just so psychologically exhausted so it just felt like people had been broken down between people around funding and who's getting what and whose GoFundMe page has raised what for what cause and a lot of kind of surveillance of one another. And 
it was something that I can't actually end up putting in the piece because there wasn't space. But I do think it's an important part of the conversation of, you know, these kinds of crisis recovery that we don't often like to focus on. We like to think that it only brings us closer and brings us together. But I had never seen the other side of it, this kind of darker side of, which is totally natural and human as well, because things are political, right? Who's getting the funding and what they're choosing to do. Those are decisions around power and human hierarchies. And that was, for me, actually even more interesting than the wildlife rescues on the island was to just see the the human toll that it's taken and the breakdown in trust and community closeness. And again, you can see how that similar disintegration is being replicated now with the pandemic. Totally. And it's you know, I mean, it's sort of cliche to say it's the best and the worst, right? Like every day I sort of see something, whether it's online or just go walking around the block that kind of gives me faith in humans again. Um, So little acts of care or kindness, but then there are the dark underbelly, like there's a family who live in a flat next door to us and I can I can hear what's going on in that family. And then other things like people, I got shouted at by a woman because I, she said I walked too close to her. Like we were both in walking through a park and I'd sort of gone around her and then she just sort of let loose at me. And, and I understood I think people are, you know, on high alert and, yeah. What I'm interested in as well is, is this period and the issues we're confronting reminiscent of any other period of your life or any experience you've had previously? Yeah, I guess there were two times. The first would be after 9-11 when I was studying in the States. I wasn't in New York, I was in Boston. But um, yeah, the similar feeling of living through something that was going to change the world forever. You knew that, right? And everybody knew it. But the kind of uncertainty around what the world was going to look like when you emerged from it. It's been reminding me a bit of that. Um, So that's a negative uh, association. But then there's actually been a kind of positive association with when I was 14 and um, living in South Africa and the first democratic elections were held. And this sort of feeling again of unreality and normal life kind of ripping apart a little bit, but in this kind of wonderful way where I just remember being at the polling booth with my parents and these long lines of people like snaking around the block and this, there's a lot of fear and uh, anxiety because um, there was worries about, you know, terrorists and bombs and unrest and was the country going to pull it off? So it wasn't all joy and celebration. But then on the other side of that, there was just joy breaking out in these like really interesting ways and people singing together and this... Um, And as a 14-year-old, just as I was putting on my own adult identity to have been part of that and to see how normal life so quickly can morph into something either dreamlike or nightmarish, it kind of makes you never really take reality at face value ever again. And I think that's why in my early studies studied social anthropology because what anthropologists are interested in is exactly that, like when does reality stop feeling real and what happens to us and what happens to how we behave and and interact in exactly these kinds of moments when suddenly everything's sort of up in the air and everything's up for negotiation again and all the social contracts that we, you know, kind of 
go along with, even if we're not consciously aware of it in our normal lives, in a peaceful society, when things get thrown up in the air, it's an exciting time, but it's a terrifying time. But there's something about the kind of creativity that is both a dark and a light force underneath human life, underneath all the kind of things that we put in place to try and hide some of those other forces. I have to say it is fascinating to me as an anthropologist and writer to see this happening, to be living through this moment. I know it's a terrible moment for so many people and I would never wish it upon us. But now that it is upon us, I think there's so much that we could learn and also that there's so much we could harness in terms of real political change when we emerge from this. You said it's interesting to you as an anthropologist, but as a writer, do you think any of these ideas, topics, moral quandaries and the way we are and what you're thinking about, do you think that will appear in any of your work in your fiction or your nonfiction? For sure. I mean, I'm not actually very good at um, things as they're happening. I sort of feel a bit mute ever commenting on things like, you know, in the present. Um, Like I've been asked a couple of times to write op-eds and I have sat down at the computer and literally been unable to write a word because it just feels like everything that could possibly be said or thought has been said or thought about contemporary present. So I think my preferred mode is looking back on things and, you know, once the dust is settled. and I don't know yet in what way it might play out, but I've always been attracted to the form of fables and allegories because they're not connected to the realist world. So, again, I think that feeling of unhooking reality from the tenterhooks that it's normally attached to and kind of looking underneath, you know, sort of taking a peek underneath, that's kind of what I love to do in my fiction anyway. So I'm sure there'll be something further down the track that comes out of this um, experience. It's interesting what you were saying about reality and our different ways of seeing reality and whether we do remember how we feel at the time. I feel like there's a lot of forgetting actually. So memory and forgetting that comes out in fables as well. I feel like the power of forgetting when things go back to normal, you know, after you have a child you forget the pain after you've passed through a very surreal period like this one. Do we forget it? I guess I've learned over the years, it used to worry me, you know, that I didn't have time to really even just keep notes of things except in the most basic way. But I've learned over the years to kind of trust that, yeah, the stuff that that you'll need to draw on is, is still going to be in there when you need it. And that actually part of the attraction of writing is accessing that stuff that you don't even know is there in a way that's kind of like a, feels like a guilty pleasure, like it's stored, but you didn't even actively know that you were storing it. And then suddenly you're accessing it again through just hovering your fingers over the keyboard. I mean, it's kind of miraculous to me. Which is a bit like therapy, as you said, the way that things come out in therapy. It was interesting hearing you saying that before. Yeah, I mean, it's that desire to shape our own narratives. It's so strong in us and I think it's so good for us if we can find the right narrative forms. I don't know what I'm going to say until I'm saying it. It's like this ongoing beautiful surprise, or sometimes not so beautiful, but, you know, it's always a surprise what comes out and that's the addiction that I'm talking about. So you're used to dealing with uncertainty in a sense than more used perhaps to dealing with uncertainty than most of us. In some kind of strange way, it seems to me from the outside that writers 
have been dealing with uncertainty with the blank page, with what awaits, what will come, there seems to also be a connection to the moment. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's something about like sitting in those emotions. Um, maybe writers are better at that just because we've had to do it <laughs> most of our working lives and, and maybe also the sense of being thrown back on yourself. I think often you tend to not like having others in a position of authority over you. Like I sometimes think that's a part of it. It's like the ultimate working for yourself because you are God, you are totally, well, not always in control of the narrative, but as a novelist, it's just you on the page. And while that can feel really awful and sickening on the bad days, on the good days, it's the ultimate freedom and the sense of just, yeah, self-reliance that you don't need anybody else to be doing the work that has meaning for you. So in that way, I know it's also this incredible privilege to be a creator and so I always feel weird when I complain about the conditions of creating which are real and I think we do need to complain about them at a political level to make sure things change but at a personal level then I often feel really guilty like wow you know I don't have to deal with some toxic workplace and some awful abusive boss and having no control over the meaning of the work that I do so at that level I think it's the best job in the world. You were talking before as well about not knowing what awaits when you sit down. You've done quite a few different things recently with your audio first novel. How was that experience? Did you enjoy the difference of it? Can you tell us a bit about that after not having done an audio novel like that before? I also have been trying to be less precious about being an artist and a creator. And because I need to earn a living, I've been just trying to be more open to different ways of things circulating and the artworks circulating. And also being okay with the fact that as a freelancer and as a writer, the reality is you have to hustle to survive. And again, that's not something many creators will want to tell you or admit, but it's true. There's the doing of the work, but then there's also just the hustling to get paid for the work. And so this kind of came about very randomly where I had written a novel that was in a very different writing voice. I am wanting to explore different kinds of writing and explore the different voices that I've always feel like I've had in my head, which makes me sound like a crazy person, which is not totally (laughs) untrue. But um, the ones that have been printed as books in the past have been in a very kind of high literary voice, I suppose, which is great. And I like to write in that form, but there's so many other voices in there that, you know, I equally am interested in wanted to express. So yeah, this novel, I'd written it with absolutely no idea what I was going to do with it because I could recognize it was a different voice on the page. I had so much fun writing it. I considered actually publishing it under a pseudonym. Actually, the only way you have as an artist of signaling that voice change, you know, there's actually no other way to do it. But then I realized that people have these terrible preconceived notions around pen names and that it means that you're ashamed of what you've done or that you're selling out. That was basically the two responses that I got from people that I spoke about. Oh, could I publish this under a pen name that I don't care if people know that that's me, but to signal this is a different voice, you know, a different writing voice. It's so, interesting you need to do that though. It is interesting I know. That, that you can't so have that flexibility that you're typecast in a way like an actor would be but as a writer, you know, literary fiction and nonfiction rather than having that flexibility which you do have. 
Yes, and so traditionally, most literary authors who've wanted to explore other voices, they have done them under pen names, and then they've often been eviscerated for it. So then, very randomly, I was put in touch with um, Audible Originals here in Australia, and they were looking for novels, which I was surprised to hear. And so I hadn't written it to be an audio-first novel, but I immediately appreciated that switching formats to have it exist first as sound before it became text on the page was actually the best way that I could signal that shift in voice, like a literal shift in voice. So I just thought, oh, this is perfect. I can still do it under my name. But the very fact that I'm going to be doing this differently and experimenting in this different form of how it would be experienced by listeners and how it would circulate fulfilled that need in me to be able to do that signaling of like, I'm experimenting here and join me for it if you want. How would you describe this particular book? Because you were saying you wouldn't consider it in the same style as your other work. How would you describe it? Um, I don't even know. I mean, this is the weird thing. It's kind of maybe more accessible, more committed to just storytelling, um, kind of challenging form. So it's less experimental in every sense of the word, but I think warmer, funnier, I hope. I think it's funny. I do too. And, I love it. <laughs> thank you. And actually more of a contemporary take, so a way of processing contemporary life, which I hadn't really done before either in, in my fiction. I'd always um, tended to look, yeah, have that backwards glance or be in the fable folktale sort of territory so yeah and just a fun read like I wanted to be able to just still have people be able to think about ideas and the way that we live now um in slightly critical or distance ways to help them figure out some of their own stuff that maybe is going on in their life but also just be kind of fun to read so Life After Truth is the title of that that people can get from Audible and I recommend you have a listen to that as soon as possible. And Kerid, when you have a new audio novel coming up, is that right? Yeah, so this was a novel that I had written that was also in one of these other voices. Again, I don't even know how to describe it, but set in Australia and just about an elderly man who's kind of going through a late life crisis and I hadn't known what to do with it again because it just wasn't in a high literary voice. I think it's coming out in June and that will just be an audiobook so it will never exist as a print book whereas Life After Truth will come up with Penguin Random House in November this year as an actual physical book whereas this one is called Once More with Feeling and it will only ever be an audiobook. Is that because you decided that it was definitely best just read and not on the page? Yeah, I think so. I think, again, this is like a way of just letting that voice have a life, but, again, just signalling the experiment and the shift. Um, now, one thing that I thought was um, really interesting, actually, in your memoir biography, I love that form, as I mentioned in the introduction. I think it was so interesting reading about your personal relationship and your mother's relationship to Kutsea and his work and just weaving in the story of your lives and his, really, in his writing. And there was one very interesting part that you <laughs> you read out from his first novel, Dusklands, on the description, there was a description about what his interests were and some of them included crowd sports, other people's ailments, apes and humanoid machines, 
images, particularly photographs and their power over the human heart and the politics of ascent. And I love the way that you kind of, you found that absolutely fascinating biography, which of course changed. And I think you said that he didn't actually give permission to include that on that jacket. But it was so wonderful and so quirky nonetheless. And that leads me to ask you, do you have any particular interests that you could share about yourself? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to compete with Kate's list there, of course. Yeah. Um, well, this, I suppose, kind of connects to my writing because I guess the weird thing about being a writer is that any interest you have eventually makes its way into your writing and then becomes not a hobby but part of your professional life. For the last three years, I have been absolutely obsessed with environmental and social justice in outer space, which is totally nuts. I actually don't talk about it too much to my family, particularly my parents, because they get this like worried look on their face. (laughs) That's a bit similar to how they used to respond when I told them I was writing a book about the perspective of 10 dead animals. (laughs) But there's just something about this kind of ethical thought experiment of we haven't yet quite stuffed up what we do in outer space, but we're getting really close to making certain, again, certain realities become set in stone. And it's something that most people don't really pay much attention to because I think we've been brainwashed to only respond to anything to do with space with like gobsmacked wonder and awe, like, oh, you know, isn't that great? So I've been developing this kind of critical writing on some of the things that are happening in space and some of the things that new space companies are doing and getting away with, with absolutely no regulation, no checks and balances. And the next book that I'm going to be writing is actually a, it will be my first full-length nonfiction book. So it'll be creative nonfiction. The working title is a pilgrim in outer space and what I would love to do is actually write about this stuff sort of a mix of history archival research but then in-person reporting and journeying but I'd love to write about what's happening out there in the style of a nature writer like Robert McFarlane or Annie Dillard you know those classic books in the nature writing tradition or Barry Lopez where people have journeyed around the world and have come to write about the environment and nature in this incredibly profound way but have done it through just very close attention and poetic detail to things that are, you know, happening on the ground. And obviously with space, that's a challenge because I can't actually get out there. So it's finding sites on Earth that let me think about space and write about space. And I don't mean I could never understand astrophysics or astronomy or anything like that. I mean, I am a total hard sciences idiot. But I think also what I would love to see is more social science and art reflection on what's happening because I think there's something really important that we could do differently out there instead of just exporting failed ways of being. Well, I've been doing these profiles of people. Um, I got into this after I met Alice Gorman, who's... Is that Dr. um, Space Junk? Dr. Space Junk, who is amazing, um, and she has a book out. Keridwin wrote um, a fabulous article in The New Yorker that people can find online if they search Dr. Space Junk, 
and The New Yorker. And Alice actually has a book out, Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe, that is amazing. She's such a pioneer in terms of how she thinks about space as a cultural landscape. And she is the reason that I fell in love with thinking about space in this way. I had never met someone who could think of it in these kind of ethical terms. Since I met her and the space community is so interesting and so welcoming and so warm. So I, I've got to know quite a few people. Women in, in space in Australia are just incredible because they're still, I think, pretty low numbers, but actually better than in America. How many people are in space in Australia? Well, outside of Australia, Australians in space, should I say? <laughs> That's a good question. No, I don't think so. I mean, the International Space Station, I don't know. There was an Aussie who went up, but... Yeah, I mean sort of just who work in space industries on the ground. Um, okay. So like space, space lawyers <laughs> and space ethicists. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't I don't know any actual astronauts yet. Um, <laughs> but I'm working on it. But yeah, women who work in these really interesting fields and who are really passionate about what they do and are very welcoming to outsiders. Is it entire new worlds that they're opening up when you speak? Oh god, about? yes. Because like space archaeology, I mean, who knew that was the thing? And then space law, space ethics, space diplomacy. So not even the hard sciences. I mean, there's incredible women doing stuff in astrophysics and astronomers, but actually I keep being drawn to the women who are working in these other kind of crossover fields. And they're just fascinating. And there's something about the space community that just lets you kind of express your inner weird And that's something I really want to do a lot more of as I get older. Your inner weird, I love it. I want to know more about your inner weird, (laughs) Carolyn. So do I. So, um, yeah, maybe after I write this book, you'll know more than you ever wanted to know about my inner weird. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us what you're reading at the moment? I was reading Uncanny Valley, the um, Anna Wiener's uh, memoir. It's so good. I've loved it. Um, so I think I got about halfway before I had to abandon that one. <laughs> but it was very helpful because so much of the space industry is also backed by Silicon Valley companies. And it's her memoir of living and working in Silicon Valley as a 20-something. So I just so appreciate her perspective because it's kind of what I'm trying to do with space where nobody had dared to say some of the things that she said when you read them you're like of course that's weird and wrong and you know you can't believe that the book has been seen as this groundbreaking thing because it's like she's dared to say these things out loud so I think it's very brave what she's done but I think it's also so important that we keep critiquing these tech companies and the way that they are determining our lives down to the very quality of our day-to-day, minute-to-minute mental health in terms of the things that they've created and made us addicted to. And then the other book I was also really enjoying before I lost my mind is um, Barry Lopez's book Horizons, which is wonderful. Oh, he's so great. Um, And I had not read anything of his since Arctic Dreams, which came out a long time ago, um, and I read him. So this one's sort of like him going back to – so he's, I guess, like a nature writer um, or I don't know what you'd call him. He's like a – he's just like a traveller who tends to write about nature in wherever he's travelling but just has a way of kind of putting things into language that make you rethink them. And this is him looking back. I think he's – in his late 60s now and just looking back at these 
places around the world that are often very wild places like in the Arctic and and what they've meant and what revisiting them might mean for him. So, um, again, in terms of trying to be inspired by that tradition of just the ethics of paying attention, that there's something just about the observing and then putting into language that matters. And I'm trying to cling on to that whenever I feel overwhelmed by the idea of saying anything worthwhile about outer space. I'm trying to remind myself that it's, it's just about listening and learning. Do you find that you read differently when you are reading online? Because I certainly do. When I read a, a physical book versus in that Kindle format versus on my computer versus on my phone, I find my reading is utterly different between Absolutely. those forms. Absolutely. I love thinking about that. Like one thing I always find is every single novel I've ever read on the Kindle has felt like it's ended so abruptly. <laughs> and even though you've got that little bar that sort of tells you where you're at in the book, you know, at the bottom of the screen, I've realized that actually, yes, with a physical book, you're pacing yourself as you're reading it based on where you are in that page chunk, you know, so that you know when the ending's coming and you know when you're almost there. And so you've kind of prepared yourself for the arc of the book. But I still find I judge books a bit harshly when I read them on Kindle because the pacing always feels a bit off and I'm always no matter how much I try and pay attention to that progress bar, I always feel a bit shocked when the book ends, <laughs> like I wasn't ready for it to end. Um, now, what books would you recommend to people just in general to get them through this time at the moment? Um, actually, what I would recommend is for the people who've got young kids who don't have any time to read anyway, but if they are lucky enough to scrape a bit of time in bed at the end of the long day, um, Maybe something about like why modern parenting feels the way it does, even when we're not in pandemic conditions. So one book that I read last year that I got so much out of is called All Joy and No Fun by Jennifer Senior. She's an American. And it's just this amazing ethnography of modern parenting. It's not a parenting manual. It's not trying to tell you what to do or how to do things. It's She's just interested in why it feels the way it does for, you know, many people in a similar situation around the world. Why does the quality of parenting feel the way it does? And then looks historically back at certain things that <clears throat> changed to make it feel that way. And it just helped me a lot to... I think put a name to some of the discontents and the frustrations and the feeling of it being unmanageable and also just the things that we do and the way that we treat our children and how that's changed over time and is so cultural. So one thing that I keep thinking about is she talks about how we like to go on about the problem with modern parenting is the patriarchy that, you know, women are still enslaved at some level. But she makes the point that it's that we live in an age of filiarchy where we are ruled by children. And that so much of what's hard about modern parenting is that in this particular cultural moment, the child is king. And it's so radically different to how we were raised or how our parents were raised, where, you know, children were just expected to get on with things and were, you know, minor members of the family and were certainly not in control, were certainly not calling the shots. And she traces the kind of bigger sociological shifts around why that's ended up, why it is today that we are ruled by our children. 
I've been so much kinder to myself and also to others around me since reading that book and, and understanding that there are bigger forces at play here that are determining the quality of how the parenting feels. And unless we're aware of those, we can't be self-reflective about our own parenting. And certainly we shouldn't be judging people for what they're doing because at a deep level, it's a kind of way to prepare for something that we don't know how to prepare for anymore. Thank you so much, Keridwin, for this chat that's led us all over the place. And to everyone listening, make sure you order Keridwin's books from your local indie bookshop. And do listen to her audiobooks too, Life After Truth and the new one coming up called Once More With Feeling. And don't miss the next edition of The Secret Life of Writers. Thank you.